Amen. It is Easter, so I've got a box of props. Because I just, you got to be ready, but you don't, we, we, can, we can wait for those later. Um, I woke up Monday morning, I got to the office, I sat down, and I realized I had a problem. Okay, maybe I, maybe I could have that realization anytime, but this was a particular problem that I realized on Monday morning. See, I was looking ahead to this Sunday, I was like, okay, it's Easter Sunday coming up, and, and Easter Sunday is not the problem, that's a good thing, but that's the context for my realization of the problem. See, I had, I had a scripture that I wanted to preach from. We're in the sermon series titled Jesus First. We're preaching through the book of Hebrews. The sermon series is titled Jesus First. I was like, hey, this is a good Easter theme. I think this is going to work. We can stick with that. Um, we're coming up to Hebrews chapter 9. That talks about the blood of Christ and its power at work in our lives. And I thought, hey, that's a good Easter theme. He died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins and rose again, the blood of Jesus. This is a good Easter theme. All right, I've got a text. I've got three points to preach during the sermon. Jesus was in the grave for three days. The preacher's got three points. Oh, but what I didn't have, I didn't have a title. And you know me, I like to I like my I like my sermon titles, and I often come up with something that I at least really like as a sermon title. Um, whether or not you do, I don't know, but uh, but I didn't have a title, and I was just kind of stuck for trying to figure this out. So I did what any self-respecting, you know, educated, creative, intelligent preacher would do. I went to Google, <laughs> and I started looking around for some ideas for the title. And my Googling led me to a place I'd never been before, but I've heard about. Maybe you've heard about it before. My Googling led me to this new website called ChatGPT. Anybody here ever visited ChatGPT? And it's like, it's like you're on chat with your telephone company. You just write stuff and it writes back to you. And I was like, all right, ChatGPT, give me an Easter sermon title. That's what I said. And here's what it said. Resurrection power, the ultimate victory over death. If you don't like that, it gave me a second option. From death to life, the miracle of Easter, or a third option, the great exchange, our sin for his righteousness. I was like, all right. That's probably, that's pretty good. Those are, those are Easter themed, but it, it just didn't quite hit the mark. So I said, all right, ChatGPT, we're going to, I'm going to press you a little bit. I said, give me a title for my Easter sermon based on Hebrews chapter 9. And it gave me a bunch of different options, but one of them jumped to the front. It gave me the title, The Blood of Christ, Cleansing Our Consciences and Giving Us Access to God. And it didn't stop there. It gave me an explanation of why it gave me that title. It told me this title emphasizes the importance of the blood of Christ, which is discussed in Hebrews 9.14. Yes, it is. And it highlights how it cleanses our consciences and gives us access to God. Wow. You know what else I did? I asked it to write me an Easter sermon. <laughs> and it did it. And I am definitely not going to preach that sermon because it was, it was, eh. sorry, chat GPT, if you're listening, uh, it wasn't a very good sermon. It just wasn't, it wasn't great. But it was, it was, you know, it wasn't terrible. So I got my options. I did my Googling. I got my ideas. But I'm not going to use any of them. But what I am going to use 
as my title for our Easter sermon, um, in which I'm going to preach from Hebrews chapter 9, kind of the second half. Uh, the words will be on the screen a little bit. I want to preach a sermon titled, Chat GPT, can't do that. <laughs> Chat GPT, can't do, can't do that. Uh, if you have a Bible, I uh, invite you to open it to Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 11. We'll read 11 through 15. We'll skip a few, not because they're not important. They are, but, you know, sometimes there's just... And then we'll finish with verses 23 through 28. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 11, says, When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more, then, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Jumping ahead to verse 23. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all, at the culmination of the ages, to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Here's the three things I want to talk about from Hebrews chapter 9 this morning. I want to talk about the idea of captivity. I want to ask a question, why blood? And then I want to talk, talk about that phrase that shows up a couple times here and again and again in the next chapter, couple chapters of Hebrews, this phrase, once for all. Captivity. Um, Jeff, my slides, I forgot to switch them to the proper view. If you could do whatever you do to to fix my error, thank you. That'd be great, because if I don't know what's coming next, then I don't know what's coming next, and then I just have to make stuff up like I'm doing right 
Now, um, ah, yes, okay. <laughs> it's a picture of a canoe, obviously. That makes it abundantly clear what's coming next. Uh, the text said that Jesus gave his life. He sacrificed it. And he did that in order to be a ransom that will free us from sin. And there's this idea throughout Scripture. Jesus said at other places, he said, we are slaves to sin. The Apostle Paul took that idea and repeated it many, many times. He said we're in bondage to sin and we cannot free ourselves. The good news of Easter is as good as it is, because behind it stands the hard and heavy news that we live in a world that is broken and fractured by sin. And that sin is not just a problem that out, that's out there, but it's a problem that's in here. And it's not just a problem, but it's a prison that we cannot get out of except by the work that Christ has done for us. What does it mean that we're captive to sin? I think anybody who's honest with themselves and has just a little bit of self-reflection, can pretty easily come up with what it means that we're captive to sin. If you've ever had a choice to make, and you've seen what clearly is a good option, good for you, good for others, a healthy option, and what's clearly a not good option, and if you've ever had that choice and said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do the thing that's bad for me and others. That's what I'm going to do. If you've ever done that, against your better judgment, you know what it means to be captive to sin. If you've ever struggled with addiction, no matter what the substance is, no matter what the neuroticism is, if you've ever struggled with addiction where you know you want to do something different, think something different, feel something different, choose something different, and yet you're still stuck because of the power of it in some way, you know what it means to be captive to sin. If you've ever struggled with mental illness, not to say that mental illness is a sin, but I think its reality is evidence that we live in a broken, fallen world. If you've ever struggled went with mental illness and felt like there's thoughts running through your mind, emotions on your heart that you just can't free yourself from, you know what it is to be captive to sin. I used to be a, a whitewater canoe guide. Um, and one of the things that you had to become good at in whitewater canoeing uh, was you had to become aware and you had to teach the paddlers that you were responsible for uh, of a certain danger of the water. See, rivers are wonderful fun. You know, you can paddle fast, you can go over big, exciting rapids, but the same water that makes paddling really fun can very quickly become a dangerous body of water. If you're not careful, your canoe, which should usually be going the same direction as the rapids, can get turned sideways. And if your canoe gets turned sideways and it runs into an exposed rock, you can suffer what's called wrapping your canoe, where the waters will literally wrap it around a rock. And I tell you what, it takes a lot of people and a lot of ropes and some good understanding of pulley systems to get a canoe off a rock when it gets wrapped around it. I share that because I think the starting point of fully appreciating and celebrating Easter, the starting point from the text of Hebrews, the starting point that Jesus taught about in his life is acknowledging that we are captive to sin. And when we acknowledge that, we have to acknowledge that sin is both real and powerful. 
We would, I would love to say sin's not a real thing. You could just wish it away. If you ignore it, then it'll never hinder your life. But I think, in fact, what Jesus said is true. Sin is a real force in this world that has caused a brokenness we can see everywhere around us, and it's caused a brokenness that is deep inside us. That doesn't mean that we're always as bad as we could possibly be. It means every part of us is cracked, fractured, impacted by the touch of sin in such a way that we can't fix it ourselves. That's how powerful it is. If we're going to celebrate resurrection, the first thing I'd invite us to think about is to remember again that we are in bondage to sin and cannot free ourselves. And that sin in our lives, it is real. Whether we admit it or aware of it or not, it is real and it is powerful. And its power is not working for your or my or anybody's good. So if we admit that, what are we, what are, what are we to do about it? What are we to do about this acknowledge that we're stuck somewhere and we want to get free, but we just can't get free? And that brings me to my next point of asking the question, why blood? One of the verses that we skipped over right in the middle of Hebrews, you might have seen it if you were reading in your own Bibles. Um, It was talking about how the blood of Christ was offered as a sacrifice for our sins, and yet it was so much greater than the blood of the goats or the lambs or the doves that were offered in the Old Testament sacrificial system. And the author of Hebrews said, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And I've thought, I've thought about this a few times. I've thought, well, why is that? I mean, could God not have come up with some other method that wasn't so messy, you know, and, and potentially contagious, spreading contagions? Or like, what, why is blood necessary for the forgiveness of sins? And, and man, that's a big question, so I can only do it so much justice right now, but I want to give three observations that might kind of get our, our, our minds around it. First of all, simple observation The sacrifice of the life of Christ, and blood is, among many things, an obvious illustration of life. When your blood is gone, your life is gone. The sacrifice of Christ and the power of his blood was based on the Old Testament precedent that an animal would be sacrificed in order to heal and restore and ensure a healthy relationship with God. So Christ is continuing in his life what God began in the Old Testament covenant. But it's really interesting because this idea of blood being a means of, and sacrifice being a means of life, is not actually unique to the Hebrew scriptures. You can find religions around the world, religions from India, religions from China, religions from ancient Greece, that make the same assumption that sacrifice brings about some sort of restoration with the God. And that doesn't necessarily answer the question why, but it is an interesting like, huh, How is it that so many different people around the world have made a similar, uh, you know, thought a similar, found a similar thing in their various religious systems? Which brings me to what I think is is a really interesting thought experiment. Um, It turns out the idea that blood was necessary, the blood of Christ was necessary to forgive our sins, actually we can see the same principle at work just about anywhere in life. I think that In any aspect of life, sacrifice is essential, unavoidable, to pursue health. If you want to become a physically healthy person, 
You have to sacrifice some time. You have to sacrifice some comfort. You have to do the hard, sometimes painful work to get stronger and healthier. You need to get your lungs burning on a run or your muscles searing with pain in the, in the weight room in order to get stronger. If you want to be a relationally healthy person, you need to be willing to sacrifice some of what you want for the good of others in order to find the joy of a healthy relationship. If you want to become uh, a healthy, successful person in your profession, you got to do the sacrifice of hard work and study in order to grow in competency. And it turns out that in life, generally speaking, greater sacrifice results in greater growth. The more you're willing to give up in order to pursue something good and healthy, it's not, it's not like a guarantee, it's not every time, but generally, generally speaking, the more you're willing to sacrifice and give up, the more growth and health you can experience. And so it turns out that this idea that without blood, without the sacrifice of Christ, there was no forgiveness, there was no reconciliation, whatever the reason behind it, one thing is for certain, that's actually true of everything in life. You don't get growth without some sacrifice. And so it is with our relationship with God. Christ said, what has always been true of, this, of life in this world is brought to its fulfillment here, and I will give the greatest sacrifice in order to bring about the greatest good, not just for one person once, once a year, not just for some people sometimes, but Christ's sacrifice was so great that it brought about his forgiveness for all people throughout all of history. Which brings us the last thought. In the Old Covenant, we talked about this for the past couple weeks, in the Old Covenant, the priests would come and sacrifice day after day after day, time after time after time, again and again and again. People would bring another animal. People would bring another sacrifice and say, God, forgive me of my sins, over and over and over. But Christ says that his sacrifice is once for all. I wonder... um, I started out sharing a, a silly example of a problem I had. I got to come up with a sermon. And I said, so I did, you know, I did what a lot of us do. I had a problem, so I went to Google to find my answer. But it turns out as I was Googling for my answer to that problem, Google sucked me in, and it, and it shot me on many different waves of the ocean called the Internet, landed me on distant shores. One of the things I stumbled across was a list of questions that people often, like millions of times, search for answers to in Google. It turns out people don't just bring silly, lighthearted questions to Google. People are daily bringing pretty heavy questions to Google. Um, Millions of times people are searching, how do I lose weight fast? Um, All right, you know, maybe Google can help you. Um, Relationally, People are Googling on a daily basis, how do I know if my partner has, doesn't love me anymore? Or what do I do to restore a broken relationship? People are Googling for answers to, why am I so anxious and depressed? And what do I do with thoughts of self-harm? Turns out people don't just bring silly questions to Google. People are bringing some of the hardest and heaviest questions imaginable to the internet for help. 
When I think about some of the heavier things that I've gone through in life, some of the harder challenges or heavier questions that I sincerely have in my own life, I think we all do. I think if we're honest, we're all walking around every day carrying some questions that if we were to utter them out loud, like we just saying, we might tremble a little bit at just how scary it really is. There's two things that strike me as really common in my experience, and I, I believe in the experience of many, really common when we're carrying around one of these heavy questions, just wondering when and where we're going to find an answer. And especially if the only place we have to go to find that answer is the internet, um, I find that often the questions result in either an overwhelming sense of fear or an overwhelming sense of despair. I say fear because what I think often happens is when I've got a problem, maybe a relational problem, maybe an emotional problem, maybe a work problem, I don't know what it is, but when I've got a problem that's just weighing at me, when I think of what might really bring about help and health, like seeking help from a trusting community, like maybe a church community, like just acknowledging it in the first place, I get afraid that by admitting I'm hurting and I need help, admitting that to somebody else and airing that pain inside of me, I'm afraid that doing the healthy thing might hurt more than just keeping it secret. I'm afraid that maybe if I do what's actually necessary to get healthy, if maybe I really cry out to God and say, God, will you heal me from this? I'm afraid that maybe I'll be let down, that maybe nothing will work. I let fear keep me stuck trying to dig my way out of my own hole instead of letting hope lead me out. Or I let despair take over. And despair, I'll define as the belief that there actually is no power great enough to help me or heal me in the ways that I'm hurting and broken. Despair is that voice that says, you're the only one, and if you told anybody, nobody would ever understand. So you better keep it secret. But the hope of Easter Sunday is this. No matter what problem we might have, no matter what burden we're carrying, fear or despair might be gripping us, there is, in fact, a power that is great enough to overcome any and every work of sin in every one of our lives. And that power is the power found in the blood of Christ, the sacrifice that he made for us whose power was proven on the day that the tomb was found empty. When they asked, where has he gone? He is not here. He is risen. And that is the power that is accessible to each and every one of us, each and every day of our lives, that can and will overcome anything, anything burdensome or broken in our lives. Does anybody want to give an amen to that? Does anybody? Come on. Come on. But the question is always, is not just do you know that? Because chances are that all of us know that. Chances are all of us have heard something of this good news before. All of us have been to an Easter Sunday before. All of us have been aware in our brains, and yet we still go to all the wrong places when the new problem comes. So the question becomes, now that we've heard yet again this good news that we must hear over and over in our lives, what are we going to do about it? What's your move going to be? Let me give a couple thoughts. First, first, if I hope 
maybe in the prayer time at the beginning of service, uh, maybe during the sermon right now. I hope to some degree, if, if there is something like that in your life, like, like I hope that if you have one of those questions you're searching for an answer to, that you've been too scared or felt too stuck to admit out loud, I hope that if that's come to your mind right now, the first thing you do is don't look to chat GPT for your answers. Yeah, like, I mean, it's smart. It's clearly smart. The Easter sermon it wrote, like, wow, okay, it wrote me a sermon. But it cannot do for you the thing that you most desire. It cannot, the internet cannot, no article on Google, no uh, a web series by some professional who you can download. I mean, I've downloaded plenty of them, and there's some good information. But it cannot give you the life that Christ died so that you might have, because that life is what you ultimately want most, and there's one and only one place where you'll find it, by giving your life to Christ and saying, I will follow you. And so we have to ask ourselves, if you're anything like me and you see the work of God in your life and you celebrate the work of God in your life and you taste the sweetness and the joy of his life better than anything out there, and then the next problem that comes, you go, ah, maybe I'll try to figure it out on my own this time. I keep asking myself, well, what am I waiting for? Why don't I lean back into the salvation that Christ has given me? Because one of the last things that Jesus said when he was with his disciples, he said, you know what? Um, I'm going to rise, I'm going to go to heaven, but I'm not leaving you. In fact, I will be with you always. There is never a moment, there is never a day, there is never a problem, there is never a circumstance where God is not already present, where the power of the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, is not already in your life. So what are we waiting for? I stumbled across this illustration um, that has just really resonated with me that, that I want to give. Um, what does it mean? What does it look like? What will it take for us to get it a little deeper into our hearts that Christ is actually with us, inside of us? His power is available to us always. Stumbled across a book, uh, American mathematician and author, uh, Nassim Taleb. Great name. Great name. And um, Taleb explores this idea. He says, in the world we live in, there's a few different types of objects. You can kind of put them into these categories. The first type of object are resilient objects. And resilience is made much of in our world around us. If you read any leadership books, if you read any kind of self-help books, people talk a lot about resilience. Here's an example of a resilient object. This is a sippy cup. Um, we have a lot of these. In our, maybe it's not a sippy cup. This is just a water bottle, but it's a plastic water bottle. Um, it's, it's not perfectly resilient because clearly my children have already destroyed it a little. But a resilient object, when it's exposed to stress, say, for example, a child drops it off the table, right? Or chucks it across the room, at their brother or sister, hypothetically. A resilient object doesn't break. You can do this all day. You can do this for years of four different children, and it'll get scuffed up, but a resilient object doesn't break. There's other types of objects. This is a wine glass. 
Now, what I really wanted to do <laughs> was to just drop the wine glass and see what would happen, but my safety committee said that that was not the right idea. So we, uh, we, have to, we have to come up with a safer way to test the resilience of this wine glass. Um, I'll keep the top on. Safety first. Or what is, what is that? Safety third after common sense and personal responsibility. A wine glass, that can be dropped on the floor too. Or you could say drop a rock on it. Yeah, yeah, that worked. Um, a wine glass is not resilient. The word for a wine glass is fragile. If something is fragile, when it's exposed to a sufficient amount of force, it shatters and it is unfixable. It's irreparable. Thank you. From the back, it is irreparable. There's still pieces of it, but man, I'm not drinking out of that anymore. Now, the interesting thing about both resilient objects and fragile objects is that while the resilient object can withstand a lot and the fragile object can't withstand, any, can't withstand anything, neither one of them, when you expose them to pressure, to challenge, to, to you know, hits on the floor, neither one of them gets any stronger. This one lasts a while, this one doesn't, but neither one of them gets any stronger. And this is the main idea that Taleb explores. He says, is there anything that, when it's exposed to pressure, actually gets stronger? And he says, he believes that actually most things in nature can get stronger when they're exposed to, to stress. The human bone, if you expose it to pressure and stress, can actually get stronger. The human body, when you work it out, expose it to some stress and pressure, it gets stronger. Um, forests, when a fire rips through them and hurts them, they get stronger. There's more nutrients in the soil. One of the illustrations given was a lump of clay. If you want to work a lump of clay, one of the first things you have to do is you need to prepare that clay. Sometimes clay can have little air molecules in it and you need to get that out. And the way you get that out is by working it. The way you get the, clay, the air out and you get the clay ready to be turned into something useful is by slamming it down a few times. And the artists in the room probably know a lot more about this, but the illustration works best if I slam it down a few times. Taleb says things like this lump of clay, which the more you work it, the more pressure you, you expose it to, the stronger it gets. The term he comes up with, he calls these anti-fragile. Things that aren't just resilient and can endure for a little while, but things that actually will get stronger the more stress and pressure exposed to them. And the main idea of this book is to say human beings, our hearts and our minds and our lives, human beings are anti-fragile. And if a mathematician can come to the conclusion that we are actually designed in such a way that even though the stresses of this world are 
hurtful and heavy and hard indeed, we can actually get stronger through them. How much more true is that? If that strength comes because we know the power of God that rose Jesus from the dead is the power inside of us that no matter what life throws at us, no matter how much it feels like we're just getting smashed down, we can know that through the power of the resurrection, God is going to make something good and beautiful even out of the shattered pieces of our lives. That, my friends, that news that because of the Holy Spirit, we can know we are anti-fragile. We can get stronger. That is the hope that gets us up each and every day. And here is my prayer, that as you look at the world around you and you might be tempted to become resilient, you might be tempted to just say, oh, if I just grin and bear it long enough, I'll make it to the end. You might be tempted to despair and feel like you actually are fragile, like you're going to shatter under the weight of it. Hear this. The life of God is in you. And because of that, you are anti-fragile. You are getting stronger in Christ each and every day, no matter the weight of the problems and the struggles that you're bearing. And I pray that that would be a truth you live each and every day. Amen. Would you guys pray with me as the worship team comes back up? God, you gave your life, you shed your blood, the most precious and perfect, the greatest sacrifice this world has ever known, so that we, your people, might receive the gift of eternal life, a life that cannot be broken or shattered in any way, a life that endures all trouble, a life that will never end, and a life that will always sustain us in the midst of every hardship, hurt, question, or struggle that might come our way. I pray this Easter, God, that our lives would yet again be filled with the fullness of that eternal life. And this we pray, as always, in your name, the name of our Savior, the name above all name, the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. amen.